Very, very few of us emerge out of our family of origin emotionally whole or mature. There are people who fill this church and other churches who know the Bible very well, who love Jesus and really want to follow him, and they still beat their spouse. They still will live with addictions they don't tell anyone, anybody about. They still abuse drugs. People who believe in the gospel that says they don't, that we don't earn our worthiness, but it's a gift of grace through Christ, but still live like they better perform or else they are nothing and they won't measure up to anybody. People who are raised in Christian homes worship God every Sunday and listen to thousands of sermons, yet they're miserable. Whether they're single or married, it doesn't matter. Miserable. And why does this happen? Why hasn't the power and the mercy of Jesus touched all those deeply entrenched parts of us yet? Why? Now, of course, there are many answers to this, but one critical factor that we must explore in emotionally healthy relationships is this. We must understand our family of origin. In other words, we have to go back in order to go forward. Now, this might be a new concept for some of you who were told that when you became a Christian, all things become new. Now, that's true in regards to your standing before God and your new identity in Christ. But understanding our family of origin can be summed up in two essential biblical truths. And they are the blessings and the sins of our families going back two to three generations profoundly impact who we are today. In other words, we might bring Jesus into our hearts, but our families have a way of living in our bones. The second is discipleship requires putting off the sinful patterns of our family of origin and relearning how to do life God's way in God's family. So these are the two things I want to unpack. See, in Christ, things are new, and discipleship now requires that we learn how to live in our new family of God. So these two things I want to unpack. It's important that I, 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 I try, especially spend time on the first one, because I want you to understand what I mean and what I don't mean by this. So first, let's talk about the first one. The blessings and the sins of our families going back two to three generations profound, profoundly impact who we are today. Our families are the most powerful group to which we will ever belong. Love it or hate it, our families growing up profoundly shaped who we are today. And what shaped your family growing up was profoundly shaped by your parents' family. This is basically all on display every Tuesday night in a TV show called This Is Us. <laughs> if you like to cry, watch this show. It covers three generations and just started flashing forward to a fourth generation to show the impact of generational sin. To show the impact of how this person's action or effect affected this, that affected this, that affected this, all the way down the line. No matter how much we want to escape our families, they are part of us. They shape us and they have impacted how we relate to others. Now let me show you this first biblically before I get any, any further. Let me show you how this works biblically. In the story of Genesis, there's this wonderful description of how God's blessing was given to Abraham when he was asked by God to leave his family of origin and trust Yahweh. This promise was that Yahweh would bless Abraham and give Abraham a family. And the blessings flowed from Abraham to each generation. This is the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh. 
This is beautiful. But also, if you read these stories carefully in Genesis, they lay out the negative legacies of Abraham's family, and it doesn't smooth it over at all. For example, lies characterized Abraham and Sarah. Abraham lied about Sarah twice about not being his wife. This, this storyline gets ingrained in Isaac and Rebekah, and their marriage is characterized, Isaac is a son, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the 12 sons, or, or, the, or the sons of, of Jacob or Israel. Do you guys know that story? I hope you do. I'm, I'm building on that story. If you don't know that story, come talk to me afterwards. I'll sing you a song and I'll tell you the story. <laughs> Abraham, okay, so Abraham lies, and that gets ingrained in his son Isaac, and Rebecca, his daughter-in-law, and their relationship, and their marriage is characterized by a lot of lying. There's a very famous story in Genesis 27 how they're basically lying to each other. Then they have a son whose name is literally liar, deceiver Jacob. His name is deceiver. They name him Jacob, the deceiver. And then Jacob, his life is characterized by lies, and he lies to everyone all the time. And then he has a lot of children, and his kids lie to him about his favorite son, Joseph, dying. They want to kill Joseph because they're jealous of him, but they decide not to kill him, but they sell him into slavery, and they lie to his dad, Jacob, about how his son died. And they had this whole funeral. Imagine, they had a whole funeral for him. They, they, they got his coat that his dad gave him as a gift, and they soaked it in blood, and they're going, is this your son's coat? Looks like wild animals must have ate him, and then Imagine being complicit in that lie that your brother is dead because you hated him so much and to watch your parents grieve for years and years and years and never say anything. At this point, four generations in, it's not a big deal to lie because lying is so much in their bones. It goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the sons. Now what's happening here? The narratives of Genesis, Genesis show each generation replaying and increasing the sins of the father and the mother. There were all kinds of other narrative, narrative proof for this as well. Think about the fights and the conflicts that each generation had. Isaac and Ishmael are in conflict, and then Jacob and Esau are in conflict, and then Jacob's sons, the brothers, are all clashing with Joseph sent into slavery. Think about favoritism. If you grew up in a family where there was favoritism, you know how badly it damages people. Each generation, you have a parent favoring one child. Abraham favors Ishmael. Isaac favors Esau. Jacob favors Joseph. And then eventually Benjamin. And then this fuels the brother's hate, where it breeds so much hate that they want to kill Joseph. Think about broken marriages. Abraham and Sarah's marriage is super, super messy. Isaac and Rebecca, nothing is positive said about their marriage after, except when they, when they first met. After that, nothing positive is said. Jacob ends up having two wives, two concubines, 13 children, all living in the same house, and it's a horrific mess. This is a horrible legacy of marriages passed down and down and down. Now, Joseph eventually emerges out of this family, a family tree with a lot of trauma and a lot of brokenness. If anyone should have been destroyed because of their family, it was Joseph. But he doesn't. He's not destroyed. <laughs> this is Joseph saying hallelujah, by the way. <laughs> it's your sermon, man. This is yours. <laughs> he walks with God. And with all this difficulty and all this pain, and all this hardship, he saves his family and forgives his family and he grieves his family and becomes a blessing to the nations. 
We'll talk about him more later. Okay, so what does Yahweh say about all of this? What Yahweh says about all this is found in Exodus 34. I have you turn your, your, your Bibles there. And the context of this passage that we're about to read is the sin of Israel. Israel now is a blanket term. Jacob is renamed Israel and he has sons and they become a tribe or a nation of Israel. So Israel now sinned with the golden calf. Remember that story we went through Exodus last year. Moses breaks the, f- the first two tablets that hold the Ten Commandments because he's so angry that Israel is sinning with a golden calf. God tells Moses, you know what? Y'all should go on without me. You guys just keep going. I'll keep blessing you, but I'm not going to go with you anymore. You guys are a stiff-necked people. I'm not doing this. But Moses says, I will, we will not go unless you go with us. This was all, this is all review from last year. Moses and Yahweh have a moment where Moses, I'm not leaving without you. And God's like, okay, fine, let's do this together, that sort of thing. They have a moment and then Moses is like, okay, show me your glory, God. I want to see more of you. I want to know more of you. Show me your glory. glory. And Yahweh says, you can't handle my glory. I will show you my back. I have no idea what that means. And I will proclaim my name over you. So this is the scene now. This is, the, this is God and Moses. Moses asks for more of God. God says, I can't give you all of me because if so, you would probably die. You can't handle it. So I'll show you my back. I'll tell you who I am. I'll tell you my name. So here it is, Exodus 34, 6 through 7. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth, keeping loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children, upon the third and upon the fourth generation. So this is what God says. This is who I am. I am loving and merciful and gracious and slow to anger, full of loving kindness and truth. I keep my loving kindness for thousands of generations. That's a, that's a Hebrew idiom for saying forever. That's how loving kind God is. But then he says, he visits the sin of the father's upon the children to the third and fourth generation. What does that mean? First, I have to talk about what this is not saying. What this is not saying, this is not talking about generational curses. This is not generational curses. This is not God saying, I will punish you for something your grandpa did. So there, there is this like idea coming from this that God will punish you or there's this curse upon you because of something that great, great grandfather did in the war. And because he did that, now you, God's like, I, I'm sorry, I have to curse you. And this curse is upon you because something that your great, great grandfather did, you don't even know him, but there's a curse upon you. That's not how, how God works. Deuteronomy 24, 16 says, Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor the children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. You're held accountable for your own sin. <clears throat> Ezekiel 19, 20 says, The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Okay. The principle is God doesn't punish you for grandpa's sin or grandma's sin. Okay, so this is not about generational curses. Like there's something, a curse upon you that some like witch doctor put on your grandpa and now God has to honor. 
Like, oh, no, that curse was upon you. I have to honor that curse. That's not what's happening. Okay, so what is, he, what is God saying here then? I called my, I, my friend Tim Mackey, who runs the Bible Project, who happens to be a Hebrew scholar, and asked him this question. This is a really sticky passage. And after studying, I still didn't really understand how to make sense of it. So I asked him, I called him, and he said that Exodus is saying something that we're to find the meaning of in Genesis. Because, you know, they roll together, right? Genesis, Exodus, they come right after each other. You're supposed to find the meaning of this passage in Genesis. Genesis gives us the meaning of that phrase, specifically Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their family, right? The third and fourth generation. And this is what Mackey said. He said, each generation's failures makes the next generation's environment in which they grow up even more difficult to be faithful to Yahweh. And because of that, it's like the compounding interest of sin and destructive family habits keep accumulating over the generations. That's the context of the golden calf. Newly freed Israel has been delivered from slavery but Egypt is still in their bones. Slavery and idolatry is still in their bones. Even though they're free and they're a new people and God's making them a new people. The second that Moses and God seem like they've left, they get triggered in some way and then they make a golden calf and they worship the golden calf. Egypt is still in their bones. Where they grew up, their their, like their family, so to speak, their nation still in their bones. And what God is saying in, in this when he proclaims his name is that this will continue to happen and happen from one generation to the next until the cycle is dealt with. Okay, so what does this mean for us? Here's what this means. Your family lives inside of you. You are not just an autonomous self you were impacted by what was going on in your family going back a few generations. You have a history in your blood. And what we see is that trends in families tend to be passed down. Things like mental illness, anger issues, addiction, marital problems. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality says it like this. Unfortunately, it is not possible to erase the negative effects of our own history. This family history lives inside all of us, especially in those who attempt to bury it. The price we pay for this flight is high. Only the truth sets us free. Amen. In the book, The Relational Soul, the authors Richard Plass and Dr. Richard Plass and James Cofield open, uh, I think, chapter three on memory with a story of a woman named Amy. Amy is a bright and attractive 33-year-old who leads a Christian campus ministry. From all appearances, her early childhood was good. In high school, she was successful, lots of friends, top of her class academically. She went to college, she continued to do really well. In college is where she became a Christian. Eventually, her, like, her doing well in college and following Jesus eventually led her into Christian vocational ministry. And she's amazing what she does there as well. She was highly effective in her ministry and relationships. But the fact that she's in her mid-30s with no prospects of marriage began to trouble her. She dated regularly, but nothing comes of it. She says, I don't like living alone. I really want to be married, have a family, and continue to do ministry. At times I'm angry and others I'm just sad. I think I might be depressed, but I don't want to take any medication. Why do I relate well in my work, 
but not my most personal relationships with guys. So determined to find the answer, she starts to go to counseling, which, where she met um, the authors. They start to ask about her family of origin. She says that she always thought of her early home life in rather idealistic terms. Her parents honored the Christian faith and attended church most Sundays. But as Amy continued to honestly review her experience, her idealism began to fade, especially when it came to her dad. I didn't want to be around him very much, she started to reflect. Actually, neither did my mom. It turned out that Amy's dad was extremely controlling and never satisfied. She said if my dad noticed me, he would give me something to do. And what made it so hard is that he was never pleased with what I did. He would critique me and tell me to change something and then give me another task. Amy recalled numerous times when her father told her she would have to stay home on a Friday night or a Saturday night because he wanted her to work with him. But when the time came, he would often leave without telling anyone where he was going. She said if I tried to say something, he would interpret or correct me, interrupt or correct me. If I really pressed him, he would flip from being dominant and condescending to acting helpless and pathetic. It was maddening. Even mom seemed resigned to dad's mood swings and just never and just did whatever she could to avoid conflict. Once while sharing with some of her early memories of her father, Amy rather unexpectedly said during counseling, I just don't trust any men. At that point, there was silence and then tears. And then the authors write this. Tucked away in the deep terrain of Amy's soul, buried under idealized images of her family, was a way of relating to men anchored in mistrust and avoidance. Now, I think this story is very helpful for us because though we may be Christian and we learn we may be Christian and love God, we learned how to relate and attach and trust and we learned patterns from our family. Our parents learned it from their family. And if you go back a generation or two and there's trauma, the effects of that trauma are passed down to you. My dad, for example, traumatically lost his mom when he was young. Right when he was starting and trying to figure out what it meant that his dad wasn't his biological dad. But another man was, who was not Mexican like his mom and his dad was, but was Chinese. And my dad, getting to the age when you start to figure out what all this means, his mom dies and he can't talk about it anymore. So he buries it in shame and secrecy. Do you think that affected me? Of course it affected me. He didn't tell us until I was 30 years old. He didn't tell me about this, but what he did pass on from this traumatic event that he went through was shame and secrecy that plagued our family and still plagues it till today. These things live in my bones. Kayeth, uh, I don't know how to say her name, um, Wiengarden, I think, probably, I don't know. She's a professor at Harvard Medical School and has done extensive research on how the traumatic experiences of one generation are passed to those in the next generation. For example, she has studied Holocaust survivors and their families, survivors of terrorist attacks, and children 
of parents with PTSD, and she writes this. What, pa- what is past is not the trauma itself, but its impact. Silence is the key mechanism by which trauma in one generation is communicated to the next. We are accustomed to think of silence as an absence of sound, but it functions in families in much more complex and confusing ways. Silence can communicate a wealth of meanings. It is its own map. Don't go there, don't say that, don't touch, too much, too little, this hurts, this doesn't. Silence co-occurs with numbers of other phenomena. Shame, a painful effect in which one feels exposed as fundamentally deficient in some vital way as a human being, is one of them. So what happens is this gets passed on from generation to generation. And it's passed on whether you are a Christian or not. It lives inside your bones. And it shapes you. Now, I don't know what's coming up for you right now as I'm sharing this. First of all, let me say that, like I said, I'm not an expert in this at all. I just started doing this work about six years ago in my own life. If you would have asked me six years ago how my childhood was, I would have told you it was amazing. It was amazing. My mom and my dad loved each other. They fought a little bit, but it was fine. I had great memories. What I did not understand until six years ago, until I started doing this work, was that I had purposely repressed or forgotten a lot of the stuff that happened when I was a kid and then how it affected me, especially under stress, especially when things around me were going, what felt like were spinning out of control. And that's where all all the things, I can tell myself all the Bible verses I wanted to, I needed to deal with my past. This stuff lives in our bones. Now there's a lot more that I want to say about this. I want to talk about attachment theory and about shame and about doing a genogram. I just don't have time to do that in a sermon. I don't even know if it's helpful in a sermon to do all of that. Can I recommend that you please read Relational Soul? Also, the book The Soul of Shame by Kurt Thompson is another important book for you to read. Also, get online at emotionallyhealthy.org and do a genogram. Genogram your family two generations back, the effects of it and how it ha- what the effect is upon you because everyone is affected by our family. Now, let me turn to some good news because we need some about right now. There is good news. And here it is. Becoming a Christian is to be birthed into a new family. When you become a Christian, you are born into a new family. You're even born into a new culture, the family and the culture of Jesus. And there are many phrases to describe the church in the New Testament, like the body of Christ and the bride of Christ, but the dominant phrase and image used to describe the church is a family. God is now our father. We have a new inheritance. Our legal debts have been canceled before God. We stand before God adopted as sons and daughters. We have a new future with a new inheritance. We're given new identities and new names. We're Christians now. It's a new family name. And everything, every other identity structure and name now comes second. Which means the most important blood you have is no longer your biological blood. If you are a Christian, is now the blood of Jesus. That is the most important blood that runs through your veins. 
And this is why Jesus says that unless you hate your father or your mother or your brother and follow him, you cannot become his disciple. And what he means by that is because when you become a Christian, your, your new family and your first loyalty is to Jesus. Your first loyalty is to Jesus, not your biological family. Now it's Jesus. Now this is a very interesting story in Mark 31, in Mark 3, verse 31, where, um, well, I'll just read it. It says, it's on the screen. Jesus' mother and brothers arrived where Jesus was preaching and it was like packed. When he, wherever he preached, especially indoors, it's got so much so where it was like standing room only. Standing outside, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived where he was preaching and they were standing outside and they sent someone to call him and a crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Okay. What Jesus is and is not saying, okay. First of all, he's not dissing his mom and dad. He or his brother. He's not like, Psh, I don't care about them. Look, what I, look at this. This is what I'm talking about now. This is my new life, mom. Like, that's not what he's doing, right? Up until the very, one of the things that Jesus does in his last words on the cross were to make sure that someone was caring for his mom. So he cared deeply about his mom. What Jesus is saying is he's redefining the family of God. Your family is no longer your biological family. Your main family is the family of God. Those who are loyal to me now are the family of God. This is a big deal. This is why you can never first be Dominican or Mexican or Chinese or African-American or German. You are first a Christian and then you are your ethnicity. You are not first American. You are first a Christian and you're first loyal to Christ. Now, if you put any of these things first, it's called idolatry. And some horrific things have been done in the name of idolatry. Especially the mix of idolatry and religion. When you put one of these things first and then Christianity second, you get an idolatry and then you start using your Christianity to persecute other people. It's horrendous. You are first a Christian. You are first a Christian, and your main family is those who are loyal to Christ. Now, discipleship requires putting off the sinful patterns of your family of origin and relearning how to do life in God's way in God's family. So now discipleship, what discipleship is to Jesus is being reparented into the family of God. If your family tends to live in your bones and what was passed on is shame or disoriented ways to attach and anger and addiction as a way to cope with life difficulties, the process of your discipleship to Jesus is getting those ways of being out of your bones. Get your family out of your bones and getting the new family of God in there instead. And so the key principle here is this. We can only change what we are aware of. This is important. This is why this work is so important. This is why reflection is so important and community is so important and talking about this is so important and studying your family of origin and going where, what kind of things have I implicitly learned from my family about the way life works and the way the world works and what things can I hold on to and say that was really good and what things can I let go of and say no, that's not the way God's family operates. And you, 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 you only could change what you're aware of. Think about it like this. How did your family process anger? 
Just think about it. How did your, your family process anger? Did they say anger is dangerous and bad? Don't get angry. It's so dangerous to get angry. And so you stuff all of your anger down and you're like the stoic person like, I never get angry. <laughs> or do you explode in anger to make a point? Do you just wait, wait, wait? And like, and when, when am I going to make my point? And then you go, like, wow, and you just like, just go Hulk smash everything. You're like, I didn't make my point, that sort of thing. Or do you, or is like sarcasm an acceptable way to release anger? Are you the kind of person that speaks under their, your breath whenever you're angry? You're just like, oh yeah, you, you know, whatever, whatever that, that is. And that's how you slowly, the real question then is this, understanding that, how did my family do anger? And then the real question is, how do we do anger in the new family of Jesus? How did your family do sadness and grief? Did people hide their sad emotions in your family? Was it, was it perceived as weak? Were emotions and sadness perceived as weak? Were people in your family sad all the time? Just being sad was a part of the gig. I remember my dad telling me once when I was about seven to stop crying because I cried too much. He looked right at me. He's like, stop. You're crying. You, I mean, it was different. It was, the, it was a lot angrier than what I'm saying now. Stop crying. And I didn't cry for 20 years after that. And I've only cried three times since. Like something's broke. And I've tried. I'm, I'm still trying. This is what I'm saying. Six years into this, I'm still going down. Like, where is that from? Like, how do I grieve? How do I, like, for real grieve? But that's, like, in my bones. And getting that out, it takes a ton of work. How did your family talk about money? Was money the best source of security? And that's what your family told you explicitly or implicitly? Was it the more money you have, the more important you are? Was it make lots of money so you can prove that you made it in life? Was it the money is the root of all evil? Money's horrible, horrible, wicked thing. For me, I grew up without having money. And we surely didn't talk about money. When I was in fourth grade, my family had to file bankruptcy and move into a small house. We never talked about it. All I remember was I had to move schools. I went from having my own room to sharing a room with my two sisters. When I was in fourth grade or fifth grade. I remember going to the Mexican market once a month and bought groceries on layaway. I remember that. So I implicitly grew up, but no one talked about this ever. And whenever we talked about it, we're not allowed to talk about it. So I implicitly grew up thinking that money is to be spent because you don't know when you will have it or when you won't have it. So spend it when you got it. Now, I don't have an explicit memory of coming to believe that. It's in my implicit memory. It's the way I feel about money when I'm just on normal default mode. And what I have to do as I become a Christian is I have to be reparented into the family of Jesus on how I'm to behave and believe about money. So I'm going to take all the implicit things that I believe around money and I'm going to form it under what Jesus teaches about money. But I have to do the work of going, what, is my, what, are, what were the things that I learned from my family? We have to do this work. This is part and parcel of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus doing this work. I have seen so many, I've seen so many strong Christians, believers, leaders, and pastors. I want to put myself into this that have been destroyed because they've never faced the shadow side of their life. They have never looked at what is in my bones. 
how do I react and act? Where is that coming from? They've put on top of everything this Christian veneer that says, well, I'm a Christian and I'm just going to, I just believe what the Bible says. The way that you choose what the Bible says typically has to do with your biases. The way you read the Bible is a lens that comes that was shaped by your family of origin. All of us read the Bible with a lens. And we have to be reparented in the family of God. Now, because, now why do we have to do this work? Because when we meet someone, we don't typically say, hi, I'm a mixture of compulsive defenses seeking to compensate for my inability to trust at a deep level. <laughs> we don't say that. Which is mostly true about all of us. That's not where we begin. We typically, typically begin by telling our story. And the problem is most of us are not really aware of the script we live out of from our story. And here's why. Again, from the relational soul. Our story is composed of three things. Events, emotions surrounding the events we experienced, and interpretations, what we think we learn from the events and emotions of our lives. Events and emotions don't become a story without an interpretation. Our interpretation is the script of our lives. And so what they write as clinical psychologists, they events, emotions, and interpretations. There's something that happened to us, and there ways that, there's a way that we felt about it, even that we didn't know when we were super young that we even felt that way about it. And then we tell ourselves a story around that, and that story becomes a part of our implicit memory. It's just a part of our operating system when we don't know anything else is operating. It's just there. So let me use money in it as an example. There were events surrounding money when I grew up that impacted my story. So there was a few events in my childhood growing up around money and the way my family looked at money that impacted me and my sisters. And then there was emotions that around that event that I don't remember. I don't remember the emotion. I don't remember how I felt then. But what it did was I told myself a story from a very young age and I started living out of that script. So much so when I, when I first realized that you can buy something on credit, I went bananas. I went, I didn't even know that was a thing. But like they sent, I turned 18, they sent me this thing in the mail. I'm like, free money? This is, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. This is amazing. I was living out of a script that I didn't even know I had. <clears throat> I, I have a sibling. Her and I struggle, have struggled with this our entire adult lives because of the way that we grew up. Now, the events and the emotions are fixed. I can't go back and change the events, and I can't go back and change the emotions. They are fixed in the past. I cannot change them. They are what they are. The only thing that I can change in my story is the third factor, my interpretation. The interpretation held in my implicit memory must be transformed so that it's receptive to God and to my family and to others. So I do this by coming to terms with my past. I repent of how my past shaped my sinful habits that I brought into my life with God. And then I start telling my story. I start to process with someone who loves me or someone trained to process these kinds of things. I start processing the story that, I, that I've told myself and I'm living out of. And then I allow God 
to reinterpret my story. This is what it means to be in the family of God. And this, if there's anyone who's discouraged right now, this is possible. This is possible. There's so much freedom here. There's so much freedom when you start naming these things. They almost lose a lot of their power when you just start naming them. Now let's go back to Joseph. We're not told how, but Joseph came to terms with what his family did to him. His brothers sold him into slavery. In slavery, he was falsely accused of sexual misconduct, thrown into prison. In prison, he almost rotted and died, helped two guys get out of prison. They forgot about him until one day someone remembered, oh yeah, I was supposed to tell you about this guy who interpreted dreams and he's still in prison. And he goes before God, he goes before Pharaoh and in a moment interprets Pharaoh's dream and is made second in the kingdom. And then one day when there's a famine in the land, his brothers pull up asking for grain. Just right there. Brothers who sold him into slavery are asking him because they have a need. And Joseph is on the, basically on the throne of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And his brothers come before him. And what does he do? First thing he does is he mourns and he weeps. And he asks about what's going on. They don't know it's him. And I just go back and read the story in Genesis. It's like such a compelling, beautiful story. But this is, we don't know how this happened. We're not told in the narrative. But we're told that Joseph did come to terms with what his family did to him. And he allowed God to reinterpret his story. We know that because this is what Joseph says to his brothers. Joseph says, don't be afraid. I am, am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. At the end of a movie, you know how this usually goes down. I mean, I just saw the third chapter of John Wick. We know how revenge goes down. We know, we have these in our movies. We know how it goes down. Like finally, finally the tables are turned. Finally I get revenge. Right, we love revenge movies. Like Count of Monte Cristo type stuff. We, we love this stuff. Joseph gets in this place and he allows God to reinterpret his story. Brother's evil. God was actually doing something for good so that I can save you and my whole family. This is what God was doing the entire time. And God had, some, we're not even told in the narrative, but God had reinterpreted, so reinterpreted Joseph's story that his, all his family of origin stuff did not trigger him when he sees his brothers. He grieves well, he mourns well, he speaks the truth to them, and he brings them in and says, God has done this for good. This is possible. This is possible to see the things that have happened and gone on in your life, the most horrific things that have happened that were not your fault at all to be reinterpreted by God. Now, there might be a lot coming up for you. And there are two invitations that, might, that I want to give to you as we end that might keep you from shutting down. Because I know that some of the stuff, when it hits you for the first time, it can be overwhelming. And the invitations are this. These are things that I learned in this journey. One of them I learned by reading David or Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath. 
And the premise of this book is that our shortcomings and our past pain have a way of making us who we are and giving us our edge, our creativity, our sense of justice, our path to success. And he proves that over and over again in the only way that Malcolm Gladwell can. And so the first thing I want to tell you is that for some of you who grew up with very traumatic pasts or maybe your family of origin stuff right now is like you don't want to go there because there's so much pain there or whatever or there's so much you buried it so deeply that you're in denial you think your family was great growing up like why do I have to even go there it was amazing sometimes the things the shortcomings in your past had a way of making you who you are today that gave you your creativity and why you're here doing what you are doing in San Francisco that's part of my story it's my past. It's the way that I grew up that actually gave me the kind of tools and intuition that got me to where I am today. It's the first thing. That, thing, that will keep you from being crushed by this. That God has a way of conspiring with it to even bring you to where you are today. The second thing that I want to say. There comes moments in your life, in your development, as a spiritual person, as a human, there comes moments in your life where you have to let these former things go. Because what got you here won't take you where you need to go. And so you have to treat them like rocket boosters that take you to a certain part in space, but then they have to be dropped so you can go further. And so there are things, there are things that might be coming up for you that like, this is what got me here. This is what got my, me and my intuition. This is what gave me my edge. This is what gave me like all the things and all, 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 the, all the ingredients for what I have today. And that there's part of your spiritual development is recognizing them, thanking them, and letting them go. It got me here, but these will not get me to where I need to go in my maturity, in, my, in the family of God. And so that's how I want to end. I can't imagine what might be coming up for you, but I know that as we move into a time of ministry, the Spirit of God will start filling in the blanks of things that I could not ever do. So would you stand with me as we pray?